0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have given us your word. We pray now for what we need from you for it to make any difference to us, which is light from your Holy Spirit, illumination so that we can understand it and your spirit might apply it to our hearts. We pray that you would birth in many of our hearts a great assurance that we have truly been converted by Jesus, for Jesus, and unto Jesus. And we pray for others of us that you might wake us up and that the word of God, by the spirit of God, might bring life to us, even as you did to Saul of Tarsus. This we ask and pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today in Acts 9, we are looking at the most famous conversion in the Bible, perhaps in all of Christian history, and that is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. You can be sure that Saul did not wake up that morning having any thought or imagination that he would go to bed that night a follower of Jesus Christ. You can be sure he didn't wake up that morning expecting that he would encounter Jesus that day. And you think of the dramatic change that happens in Acts 9. Something profound has happened because Acts 9.1 begins with Saul persecuting Christians. And the passage ends with Saul being a persecuted Christian. It begins with him hunting Christians. It ends with him being hunted as a Christian. It begins with him as this wolf devouring Jesus' people. And yet throughout Acts 9, Jesus transforms this wolf into a sheep. And moreover, on his way to be a shepherd of Jesus' flock. Acts 9 is this incredible, dramatic conversion. And remember with me, Saul is not what we would today call a seeker. He's not open. He's not seeking. He's not sort of low-hanging fruit that was ripe for the plucking for Christian witness and gospel. Saul in this way is nothing like the man we met last week in Acts 8, the Ethiopian, the man who had traveled a thousand miles and was just waiting for someone to tell him about Jesus. And as soon as someone did tell him about Jesus, he asked, Where's water? I need to get baptized. That's not Saul. Saul has heard the Christian message already. He's heard Christian witness and the Christian gospel, and it's made no difference whatsoever. He heard Stephen's sermon. He watched Stephen die, and he was not remorseful or broken. He was not phased. In fact, the Christian gospel, the best sermon he had ever heard, simply bounced off his heart. It's like trying to take down a concrete wall with a racquetball. It just bounces off. It doesn't penetrate. It doesn't sink in. It doesn't cause that wall to crack. It just bounced off, and so was Stephen's sermon. So was Stephen's life. So was Christian after Christian. He had heard all the claims, and yet it all bounced off his heart. Saul is resistant and hostile and hardened and closed to everything anything that has to do with Jesus or his people. Now, undoubtedly, I imagine you might know of someone like that. Perhaps you might be someone like that. And yet Acts 9 is the story of this impossible man. In fact, just for us to appreciate how impossible it was that Saul should be converted, remember with me, this is actually the third time in Acts that we are meeting Saul, not the first. We met him first in chapter 7, when, if you remember, Stephen was getting his skull cracked open, his head bashed in, and Saul stood there with an approving smile. In fact, he held everyone's coat so that everyone could get a good aim at Stephen. And then, with the splattered blood of Stephen not yet fully dried, even from his cloak, now we saw him at the beginning of 8, in 8 verse 3. And Acts tells us that that Saul went about ravaging the church. Hear those words. Ravaging the church, entering house to house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. So what's the word? The word there Luke uses, ravaging, is a word that in other parts of the Bible is used to describe like a wild boar ravaging a vineyard. Like an animal that is mauling someone. That's the picture of Saul. He's shredding these families apart, tearing husband and wife away, creating orphans in an instant, and none of it leaves him remorseful or repentant or sorrowful or pitiful or guilty. He is not fazed by it all. In fact, Luke is describing Saul as more beast than man. And you hear it again at the beginning of 9 verse 1. But Saul... And you can hear the transition. Eight ended with Philip went from town to town preaching the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is advancing everywhere. Nine, one, but Saul. And you can feel the dark clouds roll in and the eerie music begin. And now here is Saul like a beast that's snarling, growling, panting. Here he is, but Saul still breathing threats. And murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see the picture of Saul? Like a beast, like an animal that's breathing. The very oxygen that fuels Saul. The very thing that keeps him going is to somehow capture, kill, stamp out Christians and this Christian message. So the point here is this is a hardened, closed, resistant, hostile man. The message of the Christian gospel has bounced off his heart like a racquetball against a concrete wall. And yet it's this man in Acts 9 that gets converted. And that conversion happens in quite a dramatic fashion. Essentially, when you read Acts 9, you read that Jesus from heaven sort of shines a searchlight onto the earth looking for this man in the dark. This man with this darkened heart walking in darkness. Jesus shines this bright light from heaven looking for him. He knocks him to the ground. He blinds his eyes. He calls him out by name. This conversion will be personal. There's others with him. But it's Saul, Saul that Jesus calls out to. Personally to him. And then Jesus reveals himself I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It turns out in Acts 9, though Saul wasn't looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for Saul. And though Saul came onto that road out to capture Christians, Jesus showed up on that road to capture Saul. His aim was to arrest Christians, Jesus' aim was to arrest him. And brother and sister of mine, if you're here and you are a Christian, then the staggering thought for you is that Jesus did that for you too. That he showed up, not to everyone generically, but to you individually, and shone a light on your heart and called out your name. It really is. Do not let that pass over you. It really is a staggering thought that Jesus sought and searched you out. I say that's staggering especially because undoubtedly I imagine you have close relatives who are not Christians. Maybe you have parents or siblings or cousins who don't know the Lord. Why is it you come from the same exact bloodline as them? Why is it that you know Jesus and they don't? What was so special about you set you apart from those related to you that you should know the mercy of Christ? See, every Christian that knows you is a Christian knows there was nothing about me said over and against any of the other people that I came from that I should know the Lord. Why did he show up when I wasn't looking for him on that road and shine a light into my darkened heart and call out my name out of the 7.6 billion other names on this planet? that he should find something in me. There was nothing in Saul. Saul wasn't seeking Jesus. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Saul didn't have anything deserved from Jesus by the unmerited, sheer, sovereign, free grace of Jesus. Jesus went looking for him, and so it is for any who have come to know Christ. see, the details of Saul's conversion might be different than the details of your conversion, but undoubtedly... What has happened to Saul happens to all those who are converted. Hear that again. The details of his story might not be the details of your story. So you might say to me, I've never heard a voice. I haven't either. And I've never seen a vision. And I never had my name called out. And I never went blind. And I never spent three days and nights not eating. All the details of Saul's conversion are unique, yes. But there are elements to Saul's conversion that is common to all conversions. The details might be different, and that's because Jesus converts different people differently. Even in Acts, you will find other people being converted, and none of it looks like Acts 9. Later, we'll get to a woman named Lydia. She's just in a quiet women's Bible study. And in a quiet women's Bible study, the Lord opens her heart to the Bible, and suddenly, she becomes a disciple of Jesus very undramatic, no lights, no voice, no vision, sort of like how some of us came to faith. The details of our story may be different. So for example, I'd imagine in this room, I know there are some of you, where your conversion happened suddenly, maybe even dramatically. You might be able to remember the precise moment, the precise date and time, the specific event of when you became a Christian. You might be able to tell us, listen, I know, one moment I was not a Christian, and the next moment I was. One moment I had no thought for Jesus, the next moment I loved him with all my heart. And perhaps for you, you might be able to point to a specific moment in time. For example, there are believers from Muslim background. If you read the testimonies of some of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, you would read accounts of people telling you, I saw a vision of a man dressed in white. Or a vision where I heard scripture that I had never heard those words before. And then this person goes on and they meet a Christian or they read the Bible. And those same verses appear and suddenly they're one to Christ. Or perhaps you've heard the conversion of a man named C.S. Lewis, the author. C.S. Lewis describes it and he says, I was going to the zoo one day with my brother. He was riding the motorcycle. I was in the sidecar. When I got into the car to go to the zoo, I was not a Christian. By the time I got to the zoo, I was, right? That's how it happened. I was going to the zoo. I wasn't a Christian here. By the time I saw the giraffe, I was, right? And that's how his conversion happened. Maybe some of you would say dramatically, suddenly, in a moment, I could tell you the date and time and spot where I was standing when Jesus broke into my heart. For others of you, Jesus converted you much more gradually over a period of time. You have no moment. You don't know a date. You can't tell of the hour. It happened gradually. For example, I think of our children. I think of the little ones growing up at Seven Mile Road. And here's my hope for them. Here's what I know I can say before the Lord. I have prayed for every one of the little children here. I have prayed for them this. I remember reading an author talking about how children come to faith. And he had this wonderful description that has always stuck in my head. He said, it's sort of like if I came to you and asked you, tell me, when did you come to realize that blue was blue? You'd go, I don't know, blue has always been blue. You might say to me, Look, I can imagine there was some point in my life where I wasn't conscious of the color blue, but from as far back as I can remember, blue has always been blue. I can't point to a date, I can't point to a time, I just know that blue has always been blue. So it is, our prayer for our little ones would be that when you ask them, they would tell you, Jesus has always been Lord. I can't tell you of a time when he wasn't. I'm sure in my conscience there was some moment where I wasn't aware of him, but he was on mom and dad's lips from the moment I was born. He was in the church that I grew up in. He was in the oxygen that I seemed to breathe. I can't remember ever Jesus not being Lord. Now, theologically, behind the scenes, we'd say, no, there are some definitive things that happened. Nobody just comes to faith in Christ. You have to be regenerated, theological term, of your heart, dead in trespass and sins, comes alive to Christ. You have to be called by Christ. You get justified by Christ. He then sanctifies you. You will be glorified. While all those theological things are happening in the background, on the ground, in human experience, in your story and mine, I hope and pray there are many children that would say to us, I have no idea of when. I just know he has always been Lord. You see, the details of your conversion and the details of mine might differ. But underneath all conversions are some common characteristics that you'd find here in Acts 9. And so here's the question. How do you know if you have been truly converted? Because, friends, it is so easy to be a churchgoer and not know it. How do you know, sitting here today, if you have truly been converted? How do you know if what happened to Paul on that road has happened in some way at some point in your story today? Or if you're here and you're not a Christian, what might God do if he converts you today? What would happen? Well, here I want to show you in Acts 9 quickly four things that are happening in Paul or Saul's conversion that are common to all conversions. When you get converted, four things happen. One, you have a change of mind about Jesus. Two, you have a change of mind about yourself. Three, you have a change of mind about the church. And four, you have a change of mind about your purpose in life, about the world around you. I listened to a sermon by this British old minister named Dick Lucas, and he gave some of these categories that I found so helpful. When you are converted, there's going to be a shift, a shift in how you view Jesus and how you view yourself and how you view Christians or the church and in how you view your purpose in life for the world. Let me walk you through this. Here's the first. You have a change of mind about Jesus. When conversion happens, you have a change of mind about Jesus. Would you skip down to verse 20 in Acts 9 with me for a second? Again, this is page 917, Acts 9 verse 20. I'm jumping down, and it says here, right after Saul's conversion, it says, And immediately he, that's Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Hear that again. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Now, listen, that is an incredible thing to come out of the mouth of one Saul of Tarsus. If you know the story, it is quite a shocking, astonishing, stunning thing for the mouth of Saul of Tarsus to even form the words, Jesus is the son of God. Because up until that point, Saul had seen Jesus as a threat at best and worst which is that Jesus of Nazareth was this false prophet that was leading people astray. And so in this misguided zeal for God, Saul's entire purpose in life was to stamp out the heretic and his heresy, to get rid of the Jesus movement. As I mentioned, I listened to this sermon by Dick Lucas, and he painted in vivid picture what you can picture Saul doing until that point. Until this moment in this road in Damascus, you can picture what Saul would have been doing. Saul had gone and gotten letters from Jerusalem, from the high priest, from the temple, from the holy city, that gave him now authorization over all the synagogues of the Jewish diaspora. He had permission, authorization from the highest official in the holiest city to go into any synagogue. So you can picture him walking into a synagogue on his way in Damascus. And he would have went in, and remember, this is early on when Christians hadn't fully separated yet from the synagogues, where they didn't gather together just as the church, they would have been found in these synagogues. So you would have had Jewish men and women in the synagogues present who now had faith in Christ. And now Saul of Tarsus, with his letters in hand, would have given them to the elders, walked up to the front, and sitting in front of this synagogue congregation, he would have said, everybody stand up. And everybody would have stood up. And he would have said to this crowd of people, now I want you to say this sentence, Jesus of Nazareth is cursed. Jesus of Nazareth is cursed. It's a nice, easy sentence for any faithful Jew to be able to say because this heretic had claimed to be someone of God and he would have moreover been able to say, don't you know that Deuteronomy told us, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And here is this heretic, this false messiah, hung on a Roman tree. He is cursed. Except the only problem would have been that there would have been believers in Christ who now had a new creed. The earliest and oldest creed of the Christian church was what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Kurios, he's Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And as he stood up, he could have watched every mouth that remained shut that couldn't say the sentence. And he knew exactly who he would haul away to prison, all until this moment on this Damascus Road. Because now a voice calls out to him, Saul, Saul. And he responds by saying, who are you, Lord? And perhaps probably at that time, that isn't a confession from his mouth, just a polite way of almost saying, sir, right? There's this heavenly being With light and glory and a voice, he cannot recognize who this figure is. And so he says, who are you, sir? Who are you, Lord? And a voice comes back from the heavens. I am Jesus. You almost can't help but remember. You remember when Moses saw this blinding light and asked the Lord, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said back to him, I am who I am. And now here is Saul hearing a voice from the heavens, this blinding light, say to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in that one instant, Saul's entire conception of God changes so that now from his lips come the most unbelievable, stunning proclamation, Jesus is the Son of God. His entire understanding of Yahweh changes. That means that the God that Abraham worshipped and Moses worshipped and our forefathers, Yahweh is Jesus. And those who worship Yahweh must worship Jesus. His whole understanding of God and especially of the person of Jesus Christ in an instant changes upon his conversion. Dick Lucas goes on to say, you know what's especially astounding? Is that Saul would have at some point come to learn that in fact Jesus was was cursed, but not in the way or for the reason that he thought. In fact, whereas no other New Testament writer writes it, do you know it's Saul, now as the apostle Paul, who would say these words? Just listen to them. Galatians 3, he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. No other New Testament writer writes that, but Saul knows. Suddenly, this message that before that had bounced off his heart, hadn't penetrated, hadn't sunk in, now it's like a spitball that's thrown against a concrete wall and the wall crumbles. Suddenly, this message hits home. Jesus was cursed. But not because he was the false one, but because he on that cross was taking the curse of Yahweh in Saul's place and for Saul's sins. And the wrath of God fell on Jesus so that the blessings of God might be extended to us. Jesus became a curse for us, all of us who were cursed because we did not keep the law, Galatians 3, from the mouth of Saul. And now Saul would be the one to proudly, loudly declare the confession of the early church. In fact, Saul's the one who wrote Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. At his conversion, he had a change of mind about Jesus. So here's the question. How about you? Have you had a change of mind about Jesus? You see, once Saul saw Jesus as a threat. And so the question Acts 9 would ask you is, how do you view Jesus? Listen to me, brother or sister. How do you view Jesus? Is he at best a legend, a myth, an old wives' tale that a lot of people in this world seem to believe? Is he a sage, a wise leader, a social revolutionary, someone whose teachings are helpful that we can follow as example to live a good life? Or have you come to the place that Saul of Tarsus came, that you would say, he is God and Savior and Lord. He is the Son of God. This is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And he is Savior. He died cursed on a tree in your place and for your sins. And he is the one who came with a searchlight looking for you, though you had no merit at all out of his sheer mercy and grace. And is he, brother and sister, Lord? Is he Lord? Meaning Jesus is not a co-pilot that is helping you navigate life. You have signed over your life to Jesus, and now he calls the shots. He is Lord. He's not an addition that you build into your life. He is the very foundation of your life. There is no life of yours anymore apart from Jesus. Is Jesus Christ for you, Lord? That means when he says go, you say where? And when he says forgive, you say who? He dictates and determines everything about your life. If that has not happened for you, you have added culture at best, but you have not added Christ. You have added something that your dad and mom gave you. You have added something that this church might give you. You have not come to be converted unless your whole being and life is now signed over to Jesus Christ. He had a change of mind about Jesus. Have you, brother? Have you, sister? Second, when you're converted, you not only have a change of mind about Jesus, you have a change of mind about yourself. Saul, until this point, you can be sure that Saul was pretty sure of himself. Saul prided himself on being a good person. For the sake of time, I won't read it now. But in the book of Philippians, he once rattles off his resume, what he had banked his life on, what he had trusted before. And Saul rattles off this resume. He says, you you want to talk about confidence? I had every reason for confidence. I was Hebrew of Hebrew, born into the right tribe. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was Pharisee of Pharisees. In comparison to me, no one had zeal like me. No one kept the law like me. In terms of righteousness by the law, I was blameless. In Galatians 1, he says, in terms of Judaism, none of my peers, my age, or even beyond me, advanced in Judaism like I did. You know what Saul is saying? Saul was valedictorian when it came to Judaism. Saul's yearbook had him voted as most likely to succeed when it came to Judaism. There was no one equal to Saul until he met Jesus. You see, Saul's every intention was to strut into Damascus like a conquering warrior. His chest puffed out, his head held high, and yet how does Saul enter Damascus? He has to be picked up off the ground. And he has to be led by the hand as this blind man bumping into walls. That's what Jesus did to him. Jesus humbled him to the dust, not to destroy him, but to remake him. And from that moment on, Saul of Tarsus never saw himself the same again. You see, after that moment, when the voice came out and he said, Who are you, Lord? The voice said back to him, I am Jesus Whom you are persecuting and can you imagine what it would be like in the heart of Saul to go from thinking you are valedictorian as close to God as they get to now being told by God you're my enemy you've been opposing me me, your whole life you've been on the wrong side of me you're the opponent and in that moment everything about Saul changes in the light of Jesus' glory He, for the first time, sees the darkness of his own heart. This in conversion is what we call conviction. He came under conviction. Suddenly, everything about him changes. You know when he goes back to that list of all the stuff he used to brag about in Philippians? He says, now that I met Jesus, you know what all that stuff is? It's dung. Literally the word there. It's rubbish. It's it's garbage. All that stuff I used to brag about is crap it doesn't hold any weight with god the only standing i have with god is mercy is grace i was running from him he ran towards me i wasn't looking for him he came looking for me in fact brothers sister would you understand even the progression of saul's life i never saw this before i was shown this just a few weeks ago do you know that when he first converts in corinthians he refers to himself and he says I am the least of all the apostles. That's pretty humble. But then do you know later in his life, as he matures as a Christian, do you know how he describes himself? I'm the least of all the saints. And then when he's at the end of his life, when he's really mature in Christian living, do you know how he describes himself? I am the chief of all sinners. Isn't that an unbelievably backwards progression? That the holier he got, the more sanctified he got, the more he came to know Jesus, the less he thought of himself. That he starts off the least of all the apostles, and then as he matures, he becomes the least of all the saints. And when he becomes really holy and really godly, he's the chief of all sinners. See, this is what we say. We used to do this thing called gospel-centered life. You can show this slide. Right? We used to do this as a visual picture of what happens to every Christian. Right? You have your life, and then you convert. And at conversion, what you begin to see is you suddenly see there's a gap between Jesus' holiness and your sinfulness. And suddenly there's a gap. And when that gap opens, you become aware that you need the cross of Jesus to bridge that gap. But then, as you progress in Christian life, you grow in your awareness of Jesus' holiness. And at the same time, you grow in your awareness of your own sinfulness so that the cross over time doesn't shrink and become something in the rearview mirror. The cross grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Your awareness of your need for his mercy grows larger and larger and larger. You go con- from confessing, I am the least of all the apostles, to I am the least of all the saints, to I am the chief of all sinners. The man who had the perfect pedigree and the right performance and the perfect resume to present God comes to the very end of his sanctification only to say, I'm the worst there ever was. But it was for me that Jesus Christ showed up on that road in Damascus. So here's the question Have you had a change of mind about yourself? Has that happened to you, dear friend? Or are you still banking on some resume of your good deeds? Do you still intend to show Jesus the good things that you have done as why you should be valedictorian in heaven? Or have you come to see, as Saul did, of his great need for Christ? I remember telling you years ago, I remember going to a church in South Philly. There was a 90-something-year-old pastor, if I remember right, he, he gave communion. His hands were shaking as he gave communion. And yet, I was a guest preacher that day. I preached this very simple gospel message. He was sitting behind me at 90-something years old. He said amen like he was hearing this for the first time. And I remember thinking, I hope on our last day, the gospel is just as good news as it was the first day because the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger. He had a change of mind about Jesus And he had a change of mind about himself. Third, he had a change of mind about the church. I'll say these next two quickly. He had a change of mind about the church, meaning till this point, I think it's so clear, Saul hated the church. Saul's opinion was that everybody within Jesus' people was blind to the truth and he was seeing everything right. And suddenly in Acts 9, it turns. And now he realizes he's the one who's blind and he needs Jesus' people to give him sight they have something he doesn't have. And it comes through a man named Ananias, right? Verse 10, the Lord Jesus appears to Ananias, a disciple in Damascus, just like Philip in eight. He's just an ordinary person in the pews. Wonderful good news for us. The most amazing apostle is converted by this calling of this ordinary one chapter, no other mention, Ananias. Ananias plays his role what's his role the Lord appears to him and he says there's this man named Saul of Tarsus He's on straight street in Damascus, which by the way is still there I want you to go there and you'll find him and you love Ananias's response. Ananias basically says come again Right, and he essentially says Jesus. I don't know if news has made heaven yet, but Saul is actually a bad guy He's actually here to capture and kill us and Jesus responds. I know who Saul was And I know what Saul intended to do. But Ananias, rise and go because he is my chosen instrument. And I intend to make my name known through him to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. And then 17 tells us that Ananias got up and he went into the house and laying his hands on him, the text says, laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine with me Saul sitting in the darkness, groping about, convicted of his sin, on the wrong side of Jesus, though he thought he was on the right the whole time of his life. He hasn't eaten anything or drank anything in three days. And can you picture with me that the first words he ever hears from a Christian post his conversion is brother. A hand comes on him. Every time he laid his hands on a Christian, it was for violence. But now a Christian hand is laid on him and says, brother Saul. And friend, that's what happens in conversion. Instantaneously, your foes are now your family. And they become his brother and his sister. That's what happens when you come to Christ. When God adopts you, you become a child, and you instantaneously become a sibling, and you instantaneously get a family that rejoices over you. I can tell you, I remember when Mike Biscocho, who's a member here, became a Christian. Mike started coming to the church because another friend at the church named Mike Bowder started inviting him to church. And I remember over a few weeks, God was doing something in Mike's heart. We had a baptism class upstairs. So Mike asked if he could sit in on this class because he wanted to eat in everything he could hear about Jesus. So we sit in on this class, and I'm talking to a classroom of people who are getting ready to be baptized. I'm ready to close up the class, and Mike Biscocha in front of everybody goes, wait, I have a question. Should I get baptized? And I remember vividly thinking to myself, a non-Christian is asking me about baptism. I know what I should do is say the gospel, but if he doesn't accept Jesus right now in front of the class, that's not going to look good. So I should probably take him to the side and explain and get rejected privately. I mean, all this is going on in my mind. And then I thought to myself, you're an idiot. You have to do this in front of everybody. So in front of everybody, I said, Mike, it depends. It depends on whether you believe. And, and we walk through the whole gospel. And I remember the eyes of everybody else in the class. They're believers who are getting ready to get baptized. They're this big because all of us are doing what? We're watching a newborn emerge from unbelief and be born into faith. We're literally in the hospital room, all of us ready to catch this baby as it comes out. And so every one of them is now chiming in and giving words. And I remember at the end of that class, Mike, with tears in eyes, said, I do believe that. And suddenly this room erupts and every one of these people are now giving words of encouragement. They're welcoming, they're, they're taking turns holding the baby is what they're doing, right? They're, they're taking turns, caring for, ministering to, encouraging, praying for this brother. I remember leaving to go tell Mike Bowder, brother, we have a new sibling in this church. And while I did, I remember the last thing I saw was that these brothers and sisters had huddled around this man and hugged him and prayed for him and encouraged him and welcomed him because we just got a new brother. That's what happens when you convert. You suddenly become a part of a family. And so the question for you would be, has that happened to you? As you read through Acts 9, when he's in Damascus in verse 14, he gets with the disciples in Damascus. When he gets to Jerusalem in 26, he tries to join the church in Jerusalem. Never again in Saul's life will he see the church like he did once before. In fact, it's a stunning thing. This man had letters in his hand to destroy the church. And he will be the same man who pens one letter after another to save the church, to build the church, to edify the church. He'd come from Jerusalem to Damascus, letters in his hand to destroy the church. And now he'd be the one to send a letter to Philippi saying, I long to see you, brothers and sisters. He'd be the one to write to Thessalonica. And he says, every time I think of you, it's like I'm a nursing mother with infants or how tenderly I hold you, or you are my crown and my joy. And so question for you is, have you come to see Jesus' people like that? Do you live like church is a place you go to once a week, a service you attend when you can make it, and everybody is at arm's length? Do you have this weird conception of this private relationship between you and God? Or have you come to realize that when you got adopted into the family, you became a child and the other kids became your siblings? And do you live like there is no Christian life apart from Jesus' people? He had a change of mind about Jesus and about himself and about the church, and last and finally, he had a change of mind about his purpose in life. When you get converted, you have a change of mind about your purpose in life. Saul gets converted and suddenly, dramatically, everything in his life changes so that the entire purpose of his life is now Jesus. I don't have anything profound to say to you. I'm very simply saying to you, in his conversion, the entire purpose of his life now converged onto one person, Jesus Christ. His whole life was about Jesus. His whole life from this moment on would be proclaiming Jesus and glorifying Jesus and obeying Jesus and knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. From the moment he gets converted, in 20, he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue. In 22, he's arguing with Jews that Jesus is the Christ. In 28, he's preaching in Jerusalem that Jesus is the Son of God. His entire life now has a new purpose it's about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. He cannot relate to his old life like he used to anymore. His former friends are now hunting him. And his former foes are now protecting him. Everything about his life changes. He doesn't fit into the world like he used to. The very crowds he used to run with before are the now the crowds he's running back to with the good news of Jesus. That's what happens when you convert. The very crowds you ran with, now you go back, but now you go back with Jesus. And you can't help but want them to know the same. That's what happens. I remember Joe Tortekarvo got converted in college. Ask him what happened when he became a Christian. He'll tell you the very night he got saved. That very night, Joe called all his friends together at two in the morning. At 2 a.m., all these college kids come into the campus center. They're in their pajamas. They've got crusty eyes. They look disheveled. And Joe says to them all, I called you here because I have to tell you something. God is real. And then like an idiot for 20 minutes, he would just go, God is real. Really, really. I met him tonight. God is real. Why? Because that night, the trajectory of his life forever changed. And it was no longer about whatever Joe wanted, about Joe's pursuits, about what Joe decides for Joe's life and Joe's vision of where Joe is going to go. All of it was signed over to Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, go, you have to say where. When he says forgive, you have to say who. This whole life now is lived for Jesus. And Joe would tell you as the first one, I have no idea why he showed up to me because I have plenty who he didn't show up to but by the sheer grace and mercy of Christ, so it was with everyone, so it was with Saul of Tarsus. See, Jesus left you here for a purpose, for his purposes now on the earth. If your entire conversion was just about a relationship with Jesus, he could have beamed you up to heaven the second he saved you. He left you here. Why? Because he has a purpose for you. It's like fishing When you get started into fishing, you use a fake worm or or bait. But the real fishermen don't go out into the middle of the ocean with a worm. You actually have fish that you put on at the end of the line to catch other fish. And Jesus, the fisher of men, does that. He saves sinners in order to send out sinners to save other sinners. That's the plan. That's what it was for Saul of Tarsus, and that's what it is for us. So here's the question. Has that happened to you? Has your entire life now been reoriented around the person and work of Jesus Christ? Is the purposes of your life and the plans for your life and the mission of your life now around this one person and what he has done for you and what he intends to do through you? So, brother or sister, have you been converted? Have you had a change of mind about Jesus? Have you had a change of mind about yourself? Have you had a change of mind about the church? Have you had a change of mind about your purpose in life? If you have, then you should sing with all your heart today, thanks be to God for the grace of God which found you. And if you have not, then I pray that today you will. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we pray and ask that you, by your word as it's been preached and by your Holy Spirit as he's here, would shine a light from heaven and call out personally by name any and every who do not know you here. We pray that even in the stillness of our own heart, we would hear Jesus from heaven calling us by name personally, that as we feel something moving in our heart, tugging, that we might know this is the hound of heaven pursuing us, and that you might win us, and we might respond as Saul did. And for all who do know you, we pray that you would awaken us with fresh gratitude, that we would be amazed at the thought while we were going on our way, while there were better candidates everywhere around us, through the sheer mercy and grace you came to us. And we give you thanks, and we pray that it would burden our hearts that there's a world full of people who don't know you, and that you would send us out to save others as you saved us. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name.